Well, as we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm 50, as you notice in your bulletin. Psalm 50 this morning, as you can see from the title, The Danger of Redefining God. It has been on my heart recently because of the increased action of some within evangelicalism and even actually within humanism, although we would not be surprised by that. The reality that is to reject God, the God of the Bible, for a God of our own making. The redefining of God. This is done in subtle ways and in some not-so-subtle ways throughout the years. In fact, any time we begin to question in any kind of unbiblical way a doctrine of Scripture that is clearly defined by Scripture is a redefining of God. Evangelicalism did this several years ago with the openness of God when they begin to try to say from the liberal front that God did not know everything, that God continues to learn, that God isn't really omniscient. He is learning from the acts and activities of men. This goes on and on within evangelicalism over the years, and one prevalent way is in worship. How we approach God how we come before God in worship. And so this morning, as we end our year this year on this Sunday, and I think uh, rightly so, begin really in one sense our new year, calendar year, uh, I want us to focus our attention on Psalm 50. Because Psalm 50 addresses this issue, the redefining of God from the perspective of the nation of Israel. This is a psalm, as your Bible notates, if you have any kind of Bible that has notes or otherwise, this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a music director in the temple. He would have been part of the Levitical family, the priestly family that God had set aside for the duties of the temple, and it was his duties that were to lead the time of worship through song. He would have been like Randy is for us. Those who would lead the music part of our worship. And so he would both compose music and he would lead music for the people of Israel. And this psalm would have been a song that he composed or a psalm, which many of them were uh, as songs. He would, he composed this for worship. And specifically from Asaph's perspective here in Psalm 50, the worship of Israel is being judged by God. The worship of Israel is being judged by God. This psalm has then a prophetic reality. A prophetic reality because why? It looks forward to the time when Israel will once again stand before God, like we read about even today in Isaiah chapter 55, when Israel would stand before God as his people in the kingdom, when Jesus Christ would rule, when Israel would be being drawn back to God as God had promised. 
and their worship would be heard by God. Not as if God isn't hearing their worship otherwise, but, but it's kind of prophetically speaking of that time. But also in a broader sense, we have to see ourselves in this song. This is the purpose of Scripture. It's an example for us. Much of the Old Testament, as we read in the Old Testament, was therefore an example for us. So this is a broader sense as we see ourselves in this psalm, as we see ourselves before God, as God's people, as He is listening to our worship. Many of the psalms are about that, worship. This is where my concern lies with the evangelical church today and the issue of redefining God, which redefines worship. Redefines worship. Worship is an amazing gift from God that we have been given. And worship does not come without its challenges. Why? Because we are the worshipers. We are the people who come to worship God. We are the people who worship God. And there are challenges when people are involved. The old adage said years ago, still stands today, the church would be a wonderful place if it wasn't for the people. Right? When we get involved, there's problems, there's difficulties, there's challenges. Challenges that deal with music and music style. The church has split over years because of music style. Song selections. How to get people to understand that there's more to worship than just music alone. How many churches call their person who leads music in the morning their worship pastor? How many churches, even by their title, say something about their understanding of worship as if music and the singing of music and the playing of music is the definition of worship? Well, it's far more than that. We worship God when we pray. We worship God when we sing. We worship God when we study His Word. We worship God when we interject with one another, when we are exercising the one another's of Scripture. We are worshiping God. And so worship cannot just simply be defined by music. And yet over the years within evangelicalism, all of those challenges have come within the church. But none of the areas of greatest challenge in a congregation are those when it comes to worship. And as we'll see in this psalm, those are not the things that God considers important when it comes to worship. The greatest challenge to worship is what each one of us brings to worship. The greatest challenge to worship is what's on the inside of us when we come to worship. Everything else is external. And each one of us as Christians have a battle raging within us over what we love most. And in that battle, we are either worshiping God as God has defined Himself, or we are redefining God and worshiping something else. This is an extremely important question for us to ponder as we think about worship. 
Because whenever we love and serve anything in the place of God, we are engaging in worship, but not the worship of God. Rather, when we do that, we are engaging in another kind of worship, and it's a worship that God actually hates. We are worshiping, but it isn't the worship that God desires. It's a worship that God actually hates, and it's a worship called by a word that we wouldn't like to be called in Scripture, and that is idolaters. We worship anything other than God. We are worshiping idols. It's idol worship. And the cause for that is a misplaced love and a misplaced allegiance. The cause for idol worship is having a love for things more than God or other things other than God, having allegiance to those things. We love other things because we've convinced ourselves that they will bring us the joy that only God can bring. People change, churches change the the way in which a congregation comes together in its corporate time of worship and and brings in all kinds of fluffy and flowery and, and, and weightless things through music and through all kinds of other kinds of earthly entertainments, calling it worship when in fact it isn't worship from God at all and it isn't worship to God at all because they believe that in those things will somehow bring us real joy. Real enhancement, real encouragement, real fill in the blank. We think they are worthy of worship. And of course we're wrong. We are simply just self-deceived, and so we pay homage to them. And very often, if we're honest with ourselves, if we think about it even this morning, as we came here this morning, as we all got ready this morning, got up, did our routine, sometimes we worship out of routine. Sometimes we just worship out of routine. We sing out of habit. We pray because that's the next thing in the program lineup. but our hearts are not filled with the worship of God. And here's something we need to remember as we begin to embrace this passage. All of the right acts without the right heart is idol worship. All of the right acts without the right heart is just idol worship. And Psalm 50 is a judgment psalm of idol worship. It is God calling to order His divine court. And the actions of His people are not what is on trial. The outward acts are not what is on trial here, but rather what is on trial is their internal, their heart before God in those acts. And there is a sense here in this psalm that from His perspective... We hear God say to Israel, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Notice verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. That's like God saying as a divine parent of children, enough is enough. 
I've had enough of your games. I've had enough of your so-called worship. When I was reading that verse, I wondered if we ever think when we come together that we really have actually an audience of one. As we gather together as a people, as God's people, we have an audience of one. Just that ought to break the silence of our thought. That God is listening. God is listening and God is watching our worship. He is evaluating us. He is evaluating as He sees our acts. He is evaluating, and most importantly, He's evaluating our hearts within those acts. And He will render a verdict when we stand before Him. This is really a sobering thought for me personally as I every week think about preaching. I think Randy and Russ could both attest that most oftentimes I say to them in one way or another without even using the words, I really don't want to preach today. Because I know God is watching, God is listening, and God isn't just hearing the words that I say and the words that I'm telling His people what He is saying. He's looking at the heart. What will He say when He gathers me to Himself? Well, the psalmist here is prophetically speaking to Israel. To the nation of Israel, they're... They are being summoned before an offended God. And as we watch Israel before God, and we hear these truths here, let's hear them for us, as as if God were watching us. As we think about the year to come, as we think about the year that has passed by, as if God is watching us, and God is hearing us, and God desires our true worship. Now, just on a a very practical level, as we look at this psalm, this psalm breaks down really into three parts. Three three parts. First is the call to attention in verses 1 to 6. There's a call to attention. God addresses Israel, calling them to pay attention to what he has to say. And then second is the first indictment against them. The first indictment against them, with its cure, by the way, in verses 14 and 15. So from verse 7 to verse 15 is part 2. And then the third part is a second indictment and its cure. Verses 16 to 23. So this is how the psalm breaks apart. And I, I just want to walk through that this morning. So let's begin then with this first, the call to attention in verses 1 to 6. Notice what God says. The mighty one, God... The Lord has spoken. He has summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. It's an interesting way to put it. No one is left out. All of the earth, the earth from the rising of the sun, there is no place on the earth that the sun does not see its rising, or that the earth does not see the rising of of the sun. There is no place on earth hidden from its heat. This is all of mankind. 
everyone on all the earth is summoned by God to witness his judgment of Israel. Listen, judgment must begin with the house of God, the Bible says. And God's chosen people are the first to face his scrutiny. Notice what he says. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. So he is the mighty one. He is the Lord. He is the one who has the ability and the privilege and the right to summon everyone to his courtroom. He is the perfection of beauty. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him. It's very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth. Why? To judge his people. So gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That Now he's highlighting exactly who he's judging. Everybody gets to sit in the jury room. Everybody gets to sit in the audience of the courtroom and watch God as he hones in on his people. I have something that I need to say to you. I don't know about you, but it is hard for me to imagine anything more solemn than God calling His court to order and summoning the entire earth and all of its inhabitants for Him to preside as judge. This is the scope of His call. It's the whole earth. Everything and everyone come and see. Everyone come, everyone watch Everyone pay attention. Everyone think soberly. Everyone don't sit there and go, hey, gee, poor them. No, you need to be saying, wow, what is God going to say to me? He's going to judge his people. You would think that it would be a closed court. You would think there'd be no visitors. You would think there'd be no cameras, no extras. No headlines the next day, just God and the accused, but not so. This is the summons of the whole earth. Everybody is included. The heavens above and the earth, verse 4 says. This is all His creation. Earthlings and spiritual. The angels and all. Everything in creation. On the surface, you would think that it would be simply the judgment of the ungodly. That if God's calling the whole earth, this is like white throne judgment day. That's what comes to mind when you read verses like 1 through 5. This is God going to judge. In fact, you would expect a summons to be for the watching of God's judgment when the pagan world is judged. You would think that. The world has turned its back on God, and and the judgment for those who do not believe in Him would, would certainly be a public event, but not so here. We are surprised when you read verse 5 that it's a judgment of His own people, my godly ones, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This is a jaw-dropping moment. It's not what we expect. 
This is exactly what the Apostle Peter says. Judgment must begin with the house of the Lord. This is where God starts. And so the psalmist takes a break. You notice in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judged. Then you see that little word, selah. Selah. Sometimes we read that, we move right on past that because we're not Hebrew experts. And so we go, what is that? I don't know. I don't understand that word. What is that there for? Remember, Asaph is a musical guy. He, he was in charge of the music. Selah is a musical term. It's, it's the break in a song. It's a pause. It's like a deep, deep breath. It's the time for reflection. And rightly so here. I mean, think about what has just happened in the first five verses. Here is God summoning all the heavens. You sit there stunned and shocked and say nothing. We are stunned. Ponder the reality. That's the idea. Ponder the reality that our worship, the genuineness of our heart in worship is being seen and it's being heard before God, and God is judging its authenticity. No one else around us can see our heart. No one else around us knows what's going on inside. But when we stand, and when we pray, and when we sing, and when we read, and when we think about the things of God, and when we sit here during the message, what is going on in the inside? God sees it all, and He's judging the authenticity of it frightening frightening so this is not for the pagan folks this is not for the pagan world that redefines God at every level the humanist who who redefines God and says well if God's going to judge people like that his creation then I can't believe in a God like that in fact I heard one humanist say recently on a video I was watching the last God that I worshipped I really loved because that God was just like me the first honest statement from a humanist it's true This is not for the pagan, this is for us. The court is summoned, and the charges are being leveled. Here it is, indictment number one. Indictment number one to Israel. Think about it in our own hearts, potentially indictment to us. Your worship is mere ritual. Your worship is just ritual. Notice what he says beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. We got that straight. You're the people. I'm the authority. I'm God, and I have something to say. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. You see, the outward things. I'm not reproving you for your activity, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I'm not reproving you for those. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For it, Why? Because I own it all anyway. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine, all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? 
Seems a little confusing, doesn't it? Israel seems to be doing what is right. They seem to be doing what they were told to do. They are sacrificing. And yet the sacrifices have become routine. They have become ritual. In other words, it seems by the indictment of God here in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 8, it seems as if their sacrifices had become something that they thought they were offering to enhance God. And God says, listen, I don't need this from you. I don't need what you're offering to me. I need none of that. I own it all anyway. In other words, it was a service for God rather than a service to God. Well, let's not be mistaken. Ritual and tradition within a church are not in and of themselves wrong. And in fact, I believe that is why God in the future kingdom where Jesus reigns, that God is going to reestablish the sacrifices with Israel. Here is the Lamb of God who had taken away the sin of all who would ever believe, the sin of the world. And yet, God is going to reinstate the sacrificial system in the future. I think this is part of the reason why. Not because it's He needs sacrifice, not because it covers anything, but because it's worship. It was a way of worshiping God. It was a way of recognizing God. It's going to remind them in that day that all that they have come from God, and He always deserves back part of what He has given graciously to them. But it also reminded them that they had a need that needed to be dealt with, that their sin had to be dealt with. But here, here in Psalm 50, Israel had gotten to the place in their worship where they were relying on the acts of worship for their salvation. In other words, this is the very, the very act of sacrifice, the very act of doing this thing. That is the very thing that we rely on for our salvation. In other words, it was the act itself. It was the act of coming before God with a sacrifice that was the very means of saving them and finding favor with them. They were relying on the ritual itself. They thought they were doing God a favor. And so rituals have their place. Traditions have their place in worship. But they must never become something we do because we think God gained something by it. Rituals and traditions, even in our day, are for our benefit. They're not for God's benefit. Traditions in our day are for our benefit. In fact, Jesus Christ had instituted a couple of traditions that we are to keep until we are with him. Baptism. That's a tradition of the church. That is a commanded tradition of the church that we do it for everyone who believes. They're to stand up and profess Jesus Christ. That's for our benefit, not for God's. The Lord's Supper instituted by Jesus Christ as a command from Christ that we have the Lord's Supper until He comes again. A tradition established by the Lord 
carried out throughout the ages for us, the church, and yet God does not need those. They benefit Him zero. They do not enhance Him in any way. They are for our benefit. In fact, ritual was created by God Himself. He is the one who called for sacrifices to be made by the nation of Israel. God is the one who instituted this system of sacrifices. And so he says, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices. In other words, this is not why I called to court. I don't reprove you for the very thing that I instituted. Remember, God had established the law to Israel, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the one who commanded them to do these things, the one who commanded them to love the Lord thy God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. He is the one who commands us to baptize. He's the one who commands us to take the Lord's Supper. He's the very one who established the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ rose on the Lord's Day. It's the Sunday, so that each and every week we come together on the Lord's day. But he himself is not enhanced by it. Well, the problem with those things is not the act itself. The problem creeps in when we are doing any or all of them and convincing ourselves that we are right with God, that we are somehow in a right standing with God, and we are actually not because our heart isn't right, and we are actually guilty of grievous sin, a sin called idolatry. When we think God is enhanced by our worship, And that through our worship, we actually gain something in our standing before God. Doing ritual for ritual's sake can be so deceiving, can it? Catholic Church is full of ritual for ritual's sake. So deceiving. And so I was thinking about our church. I was thinking about evangelicalism as a whole. I wonder how many throughout evangelicalism, I wonder how many times even throughout this last year, we have come to this place, this place where we worship together, this place where we come together in church and we've come ritually. We've come out of ritual. We've come because that's what we do. I wonder how many times this last year we begin to carry out some of the spiritual disciplines that we know we ought to do because it's ritual to us. Has our daily and corporate worship become formal? Has it become ritual? It did to Israel. It did to Israel. They sacrificed because they thought God needed it. Rather than it being a time for them to reflect upon what it cost for their sin to be atoned for. What it cost for them to have their sin covered. They saw it as something they were doing for God. It had turned into for them a works righteousness rather than an act of worship. And God says, I don't need your sacrifices. 
They're not enhancing me at all. I don't take any of your stuff. I don't need it. I have I have all the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. That's a lot of birds. Everything that moves in the field is mine. How many mice did you kill this year in your house? There's a gazillion more that God says they're mine. I let you have those few to get rid of them just to irritate you to see how your heart was. But I have a thousand more. I have a gazillion more. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. You couldn't give me anything that would satisfy me. I don't need you. The idea, I don't need you. He doesn't need ours either. He doesn't need us. It's a good dose of reality, isn't it? It's a good dose of reality as a Christian. Oh, we love God. I'm so grateful that God would save us. He's so gracious to us to condescend to us, to come to us. We just came out of the Christmas season where we think about the birth of Jesus Christ. God with us. I'm so grateful for that. And yet God is not enhanced by us. God lacks nothing without us. God does not need us. We add nothing to his greatness. We add nothing to his glory. You see, this is one of the redefining things of evangelicalism over the last centuries, that God somehow needs us, that you are so worthy, that you are so valuable, that that's the reason God came and died, because God just valued you so much. It's not why God came and died. We are a residual reality of the love relationship between the Father and the Son. Christ died so that God the Father would be vindicated in justifying sinners like us. And we get enveloped in all of that relationship. Not because we enhance that relationship, but because we are just by the graciousness and mercy of God enveloped in it out of a love to the Son and the Son's love to the Father. So seemingly here in chapter 50 or in Psalm 50, in a seemingly sarcastic way, almost, he says to Israel, what do I want with all your burnt offerings? What do I gain from that? Especially when they're offered in such an obligatory way as if they are enhancing me. I don't find any satisfaction in them. In fact, they're just an insult to me. What kind of God do you think I am? That's why I read Isaiah 55 this morning. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than the heavens. The heavens are higher than anything. And my thoughts are higher than that. You say, well, what's the cure then? I mean, if this is the indictment, if his, here's God calling court and then there's this indictment to them that their ritual is just ritual, what's the cure? What's the fix? Verse 14 and 15, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. 
Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Here's the cure. The cure is a large spoonful of reality. A large spoonful of reality. What's the reality? We contribute nothing to God at all. There's the reality. We contribute nothing to God at all. This is how we must think about God. This is how we must realize and think about God and realize in our practice of worship. When we worship God, we are enhancing God zero. God doesn't need us. We can allow ourselves to get so easily lulled into a routine that we forget to truly worship God with thanksgiving and honor. That's what he's saying. Don't get so lulled into the reality. You want to fix this? Then come to me with a heart of thanksgiving and a heart that desires simply to honor me, not a heart that says, God certainly loves me for this. Cure for ritualism is the same cure for a sin-sick heart. Repentance. The cure for ritualism is repentance that leads to a heart of thankfulness. Seeing God for who He is and seeing yourself for who you are before God, defining God as God defines Himself and defining yourself as God defines you and coming to God under that pretense with a heart of thankfulness born out of repentance. I've said it before, you notice that God doesn't condemn the act. He doesn't condemn the act here. What he's condemning and what he's looking at is what's behind it, the heart behind the act. Because ritual or tradition without the right heart is a detestable thing in the eyes of God. Coming to church to worship is great. And we ought to. We have to be here. We are commanded, in fact, to be here. We are commanded not to forsake being together. It is worship to God, but only if our heart is right with God in that moment. Just coming here, doing the ritual, checking the box off, saying I went to church, it's detestable to God. Only if our heart is right before Him. Because we can come and we can carry out all the things. We can go through the process. We can get here early and we can leave late. We can wake up early in the morning. We can read our Bible for hours. We can give all of our money, the most of our money, the maximum amount of our money. We can give it to the poor. We can pour it into the offering plate all the time. We can even share the gospel with the lost people around us. God's only pleased and God is only truly worshipped when it flows out of a heart that is thankful. It's a sacrifice of adoration is what it is. It's born out of a repentant heart. So the question here is this, do we adore God? Do we adore God? That's what God desires. God desires a people that would adore Him. 
And born out of that adoration is a worship to Him. So we sing because we adore God. We pray because we adore God. We worship because we adore God. So ask yourself this morning, when I came this morning, did I come because I adore God or did I come because it's just ritual? Why am I here? What's your attitude in worship? Because the only worship that God is honored by is worship which is born out of a right attitude toward Him. So we've seen the call. We've seen indictment number one with the cure. Here's indictment number two. First indictment, your worship is ritualistic. The second indictment, your worship is hypocritical. You got ritualistic worship. You got hypocritical worship. Notice what he says in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to tell of my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? Oh, there's a change. There's a change in direction now. But we can't be surprised in the change because the reality is God's not simply saying to the evangelical church, the the true believer, hey, watch your heart, but he's saying to the false believer, You better watch your heart. This is really the professing unbeliever, the wicked. We could even call it the pagan. What right do you have to tell of my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? The problem with this group is they're not not ritualistic. Their problem is that many of them profess to have a relationship with God, and yet they don't possess a relationship with God. They're the unconverted. The unconverted amongst the body who only appear outwardly to be converted. They prove their unconversion by living continually in disobedience to God. What right do you have to tell of my statutes? Even though they come as worshipers, they're not worshipers at all. What right do you have to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate, notice verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. What right do you have to even speak in any kind of way that you have a relationship when obedience is the furthest thing from your mind? I mean, nothing is worse to God than to come and merely play the game. You're faking it all along, even though you're claiming that you have this relationship with God. You say all the right things. You recite all the commands of God. But actually, you're ignoring them. I read that verse, and and my mind immediately went into my childhood. Because for years, for years as a child, I grew up in a Christian home. 
And I would go to church week after week after week after week, probably more regularly than any some people. I sung the songs that they sang. I prayed the prayers they prayed. I listened to the sermons that were preached. I even was trained to go out with teams to go tell other people about Jesus. But I had no interest in living for God's glory. Like that humanist that I told you about earlier, that secular humanist, the God I worship looked just like me. I was an evangelical hypocrite. I was living the religion. I was living it out ritualistically. I was living it out as if I belonged to the family of God. And yet I would freely go on sinning. I think the evangelical church of today is crowded with those kinds of individuals. When Jesus said it's a narrow road, I think it's a whole lot more narrow than we'd like to imagine. I think the wide road is a whole lot wider than we'd like to imagine. I think when Jesus Christ comes back and raptures his church, I think there'll be some shocked people still sitting in the chairs of the church. And all of that brings a discredit upon Christianity and a discredit upon Christ. All it does is encourage weak people to believe they can be part of the kingdom of God when in fact going on living like a worldly person. You can have Christ as Savior, just believe Jesus, but don't worry about living according to Him in your life. Don't, he, he doesn't have to be Lord yet. He can be Lord later, as if you can separate His savingness with His Lordship. That's a redefining of God. How dangerous that is to the church. Sadly, the church refuses to face the biblical fact that these kind of people are not saved at all. They're not saved at all. They encourage them rather than challenge them. They encourage them by increasing the delusion that God accepts all people. It really doesn't matter. God will accept you. God says, here's what I have against you. Notice verse 18 through 21. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I kept silence. I just watched. I just watched. Why did you do them? How come you were doing these? I'll tell you why. Here's what God says. You thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. You would say things from both sides of your mouth. You would say, oh, I love God. And from the other side of your mouth, you'd have something different coming from your heart. The fruit of your life was really rotten. In spite of your claim that you're pure, you're not. 
that's that was me for years in the church. Yeah, I would get up with my parents religiously, ritualistically, and go to the place of worship. But I thought God was just like me. He thought I was just like you. Didn't matter what my mouth might have said. My life was utterly pagan. Truth be known, I loved to be with pagans before. Like the psalmist says, it pleased me to be with them. What he says here, you were pleased with the thief. Pleased. You were pleased to talk like them, to be like them, to speak against other Christians. That was my God. I thought it was okay. But I was a professing unbeliever. That's what the psalmist is saying to Israel. That's what is being prophesied to Israel through Asaph in this song. He's saying to those, you're just like religious hypocrites. He says, and your religious hypocrisy makes your worship worthless. You're not only a religious ritualist, you're a religious hypocrite. So what's the cure? What's the cure? Verse 22 and 23. Now consider this. You who forgot God. There's the problem. You forgot me and redefined me. You thought I was just like you. Consider this, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. (laughs) There's an implication there just in that very phrase that if you don't consider this, there's only one thing coming. This is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In other words, you better consider this This is that serious. You must consider this because there's judgment coming. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. He goes back to the same thing. The same thing he said in verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life, Proverbs says. From the heart comes what is true and right. And to him... Who orders his way right, I shall show the salvation of God. You see, the problem's the same. The ritualist and the hypocrite have the same problem. They have redefined God. God is enhanced by me, or I can fake out God. God is just like me. He says one thing, does another. God's just like me. God will accept me because he's just like me. They're the same. The problem's the same. They've redefined God. They have a God of their own making, and God hates that. One commentator put it this way. The first group fell into formal patterns of worship. They did that by forgetting that God is spirit, must be worshipped spiritually with heart and mind. The second group was wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not believers, They forgot that God is a moral God who will not be mocked. 
And they forgot that their sin will surely be judged one day, unquote. You see the difference? Those who say, oh, I'm okay with God. God and I have an agreement. I have someone in my own family told me that one day. God and I have an agreement. I said, really? Here's the agreement. You either repent of your sin or you go to hell. That's the agreement. Don't tell me you and God have an agreement and you can go on living any way you want, and yet God won't do anything about that. Seems to me that God says otherwise. It's repentance that leads to thanksgiving. That is the cure for both of these people. Repentance. Viewing God for who He says He is and viewing yourself for who God says you are and turning from yourself and offering to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving which honors Him. And so here we are in worship. Ending our year in worship. About to begin a new year in worship. And so God sets before Israel and He sets before us a choice. There's a choice. Continue and face certain and inescapable judgment in your ritualistic and hypocritical kind of worship or turn and seek the Lord in spirit and in truth. And find salvation that only He offers. View Him the way He has defined Himself and the way He has commanded Himself that we ought to worship and offer to Him that sacrifice of thanksgiving. So how do we worship God? Turn to Psalm 96. I'll end with this. Psalm 96. Here's the acts of worship, and none of these acts have to be born in the heart that we just talked about. Sing to the Lord a new song. There's a way to worship. We sing. That's what we do, but our heart must be right. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. How else? Proclaim the good tidings of His salvation from day to day. That's what we do. We proclaim Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens... Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the people with equity. So let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all of it that is in it. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, because He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. That's how we worship. 
So we worship from a right heart. I trust that is our heart collectively and individually here in this church. Let's pray together. Father, we cannot help but see ourselves in the words of Psalm 50, both individually and collectively. Lord, we love to gather. We love to be here as your people. We have been exhorted to gather. We have been exhorted to use our giftedness within the body. We know what you've taught us about loving one another. We've heard your words, and sin is always there. Satan is crouching the roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and we allow it so often. But Lord, you deserve pure, undefiled worship because you are the only creator God. You are not some phantom. You are not some fantasy of the mind. You are not something made up so that others would have a crutch to lean on. You are the living and true God, the only one who deserves our worship. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, that equips us by your Spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that we can come together and that our heart can be challenged in the dark areas which nobody else sees, but you see will be have the light shone on it, and we will have the sharp double-edged sword of the word fillet us down that we might know the areas that we need to turn and repent. Worship you with a pure heart. Thanks, sacrifice of thanksgiving. Thankful that you are the God who created all things, and yet the God who is willing to save. God who sacrificed his own son that we who don't deserve any of it would be saved. Lord, we thank you for that. May our hearts be just enraptured with worship of you. Forgive us for seeking a God of our own making, times even worshiping idols. Lord, forgive us for that. Where they need to be removed, remove them. And cause us to revel in the beauty and wonder of what you have brought us in Jesus Christ, that you might be glorified in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.